Grace and peace, you're listening to United We Pray. Taking racial struggles to the throne of grace, United We Pray is a ministry devoted to prayer about racial strife, especially between Christians. We want to help Christians think about race in a way that is biblical and helpful, clear and hopeful. You can learn more about our work at uwepray.com. That's U-W-E-P-R-A-Y.com, where you can find articles, old episodes, and more. I'm Austin Suter, one of the co-hosts of this podcast, joined today by Dr. Jarvis Williams. How are you, sir? Doing well. How are you doing? Doing great. For our listeners, Dr. Williams is Associate Professor of New Testament Interpretation at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, where he has taught since 2013. He is the author of many books, including Redemptive Kingdom Diversity, a Biblical Theology for the People of God, which is what we want to be talking to him about this morning. It's an excellent book. We will link to it in the show notes. Uh, Dr. Williams, why did you want to write this book? Yes, good question. I am very much interested as a New Testament scholar in uh, Paul's understanding of salvation in his second temple Jewish context or in his cultural context. And as a Christian New Testament scholar, I'm interested in the practical payoff for that in terms of Christian living. I think one of the issues that that Paul deals with throughout his ministry is the Jew-Gentile problem, what scholars have called, and, and the question is, is can Gentiles become part of the people of God uh, by faith in Jesus alone as Gentiles? And Paul's answer is, of course, an emphatic yes, that Jews and Gentiles are justified by faith in Christ apart from the works of the law. And as a, as a Christian uh, scholar who lives in uh, the American context, um, who's also part of a global church, I'm very much interested in speaking the theology that I see outlined in not only Paul, but in Scripture as it relates to the Jew-Gentile problem, relating that and applying that to current day problems with respect to race and racism and ethnic division. So the simple answer to your question, why I write this book, I think I think the Bible is our foundational guidebook as to how the people of God should relate to one another. But I also think that we're living in a cultural moment where the people of God need to have a, a better way forward, if you will, than, than many ways that are offered today in our current cultural climate. And what I've tried to do in my book is outline a redemptive way forward that uh, seeks to deal with the biblical and theological material, but also to apply that material in our specific social location today in in, in the American context, but I'm also thinking globally, uh, in order to help Christians think redemptively about how we ought to engage in racial discourse and how we ought to engage in love for uh, neighbor as image bearers and as and as the people of God. And you mentioned there sort of the structure of using the Bible as foundation and then applying it. And that's sort of the model of the book. Mm. And I just want to confess to you as an author, uh, something I probably shouldn't confess, which is as a reader, I usually skip the introduction. And when you get this book, reader, do not skip the introduction because it's very helpful in telling you both what the book is and isn't. So this isn't primarily just a book about race and races. It's mostly a book about the Bible. Yeah. Exactly. And you certainly apply it at the end, but what what do you do for the first probably two thirds or three quarters of the book? Yeah, what I try to do in the in in, in the introduction is to do my best to make it clear of what I'm trying to do in the book, and I make a statement or two in the book that I say a couple of things. Number one, I say this book is not a book that primarily focuses on race. So it's not a history of race or racism in the American experience. 
And then I also make the point that it's it's not it's it's a it's not a biblical theology in the sense that I'm arguing for one unified theme in the Bible, but instead the book is looking at selected texts from Genesis to Revelation, uh, and there's the biblical part, and it's seeking to develop a, a theology of the people of God. So there's a the theology part that seeks to highlight one particular theme that I see. Uh, woven throughout Scripture, namely redemptive kingdom diversity. So the first few pages of the book, I think, are crucial because I'm I'm setting forth my thesis. I'm studying my method uh, that I'm looking at the Bible fundamentally, but I'm also defining some categories. I'm I'm defining what I mean by words like race and racism. I'm I'm defining what I mean. When I talk about ethnicity, uh, how race and ethnicity are both social constructs, but they're very different constructs, in order to help the reader understand that the current conversation of race and racism that we have inherited and of which we are part, and, and the problems that go along with that, that that's a fairly new conversation uh, with respect to uh, what races has 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 how it's functioned and operated in the American experience and I want to show the reader how that conversation is and, and that word race as we've used it and inherited it in our cultural context is antithetical to what you find in in the biblical material and and that's why I start the story in Genesis chapters one and two, showing how God originally created the uh, one human race. And there were no superior or inferior uh, races of people within that one human race. There was one human race, uh, human beings, Adam and Eve, and from them come the, the numerous ethnicities that that emerged uh, in our in our world. But when sin entered creation, then you find sin operating and working to divide human beings. Uh, and eventually you get to the context in, in our experience, in the American experience, in the, in the new world, where this category and concept of race was created and constructed for the purpose of a, of a racial hierarchy. And so those first few pages are trying to set forth that the, the biblical material from Genesis Revelation sets forth uh, a very different uh, perspective about ethnic difference and how, how diversity in terms of ethnic diversity is, is beautiful and has always been God's intention. Now, that's very different from this idea of race and the problem of racism that emerges from that. So that's what I'm trying to do in the book is to help the reader understand what I'm doing, what I'm not doing, where I'm going. And then the rest of the book seeks to take the reader to the throughout the biblical material and focusing on the redemptive nature of kingdom diversity. And then the last 37 pages of the book, uh, the final chapter, I'm applying the biblical theology to specific issues related to race and racism and ethnicity and ethnic division, as well as to other practical issues regarding Christian living. And the way you you orient that conversation is so helpful just in showing how diversity has been God's plan from the beginning. It's not like God is reacting to diversity that he didn't expect and how even uh, the diversity we see in Revelation is present in Genesis in seed form. Um, so very helpful. Yeah, that's right. It was interesting that when you, if, even in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were one human race who were who were who shared in 
in being human beings, and they were both created in the image of God, but they were different. They were, Adam was a man, Eve was a woman, they were different. And, and God tells Adam and Eve to be fruitful and to multiply, and that, and that the earth will be populated through them. And, and, there, and God, is, seems to me, is anticipating through Adam and Eve that there would be a, a diverse group of, of people, um, that there would be tongues and tribes and peoples that will flow from them. And of course, I think the the problem uh, of Genesis chapter eleven is this this diverse multiplicity of of people uh, are using their one speech in order to make a name for themselves. Genesis eleven tells us, as opposed to worshiping and honoring the one and true living God. And of course, God brings judgment upon their speech; it confuses their speech, and He then scatters the nations. But ethnic diversity is not the result of the fall. It was always God's design for uh, Adam and Eve to be uh, fruitful and to multiply. And what God is doing now because of the fall is redeeming every tongue, tribe, people, and nation in Christ to restore that beautiful harmony that uh, would have been there if Adam and Eve would not have fallen, and that was there prior to to their fall. And I think that's why Revelation ends up saying in chapter 5 that God purchased uh, some from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation by the blood of Jesus, and and all the peoples, the beautiful peoples, the beautiful dialect, the beautiful skin colors that God created. He's redeeming and re- restoring all of the uh, those people in Jesus, and making us part of this new, beautiful, transformed community that is a global community that that also works itself out in specific localized churches. But but it's a global community, and and it's a it's a global redemption uh, that God has accomplished for the nations in Jesus. And you you begin this interview talking about uh, the Jew Gentile division in Paul's writing, but we see that division present long before that. And an example you pointed out in the book that I found really helpful because, of course, I've read it, but I haven't thought of it this way is uh, the interaction between Moses and Miriam and Zipporah, and how uh, there was ethnic pride and and ethnic disdain for Moses's wife, but God seems to side with his wife. He doesn't side with those who are ethnically Jewish. What do you? Uh, why did you want to include that example? Yeah, that's a good question. I think I think one of the things that what we have to remember uh, related to to that particular issue um, of the Jew Gentile division is that is that in the old covenant you have God forming a people, choosing a people through Abraham and his offspring, and as the biblical narrative progresses, we see that that this people is identified as, as uh, eventually as, as Israel. So you get Abraham's offspring, uh, one of them named Jacob. Jacob's name is changed to Israel. And, and from Israel, from Abraham's offspring, flows uh, what we come to know as the Jewish people. And then God marks off the Jewish people by uh, giving them a Torah after he delivers them out of slavery. So he does this beautiful marvelous, gracious work of redemption from slavery out of Egypt. And then he gives them a Torah, a law to to identify them uh, as his covenantal people and and a law to which they were to identify, to distinguish themselves from the other nations. But along the way, we get glimpses and we get signs of the fact that, that God is doing, yes, a work for Israel, but also through Israel for the world. 
And we, we see that, I think, with Abraham, Abraham being from Ur the Chaldeans and being the one through whom God is going to bless the nations. But then once we get a, a people who, I, who is identified as Israel and, and they are marked off by Torah, we also see that in the Mosaic Covenant that, that you get glimpses of people who worship this one and true living God. And I think one example would be Rahab the harlot, for example. She's uh, in all likelihood a Gentile. I think the scriptures make that plain, but she's trusting in this one and true living God. And I think uh, another example would have, would have been Moses's wife, where she is not an Israelite on the one hand, but she seems to be trusting in Israel's God uh, on on the other hand. And it seems to me that even even in the Old Testament, there is in 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 a very infant form or seed form this this reality that this this promise that God is giving to to Abraham. It, it flows to the nations through Israel, but it's not limited to Israel. And that's one reason why I want to include, include that piece of, of, the, of the narrative in the book. And this, this section of the book was so great. For the first large portion of the book, Dr. Williams goes through every book of the Bible and shows uh, God's plan for diversity present in it, not necessarily as the central point, but just showing how consistently that has been a part of God's plan. And the examples he just mentioned are are great for that. Another thing I thought interesting and wanted to hear your thoughts on is that from Lamentation, from Jeremiah, we get that God's people can be faithful in exile. Mm. And so it's the experience of God's people as faithful and ethnic minority. Do you think that has special relevance for today? Yeah, I think, you know, it's interesting. One of the things I'm trying to do in the book is give uh, different examples throughout the biblical material uh, of, of things that mark off the people of God as the people of God. And, and one of the things that marks off the people of God is, of course, this issue of, of, of blessing where God is is promising uh, in, the, in the Mosaic Covenant. He's promising Israel uh, a land. But, but then also what you see, I think, throughout the both the, the Mosaic Covenant and the New Covenant in the New Testament is that the people of God are also marked off as, as a people who are faithful in their God in the context of suffering, in the case of the Old Testament, in the context of exile, in the context of the New Testament, in the context of, of suffering for Christ. So I think, yeah, I think one of the things Christians need to remember is is that a mark of identity that we have as the people of God is certainly faith in Jesus Christ alone. We have the Spirit, absolutely, but also I think there are examples in the New Testament that say when you suffer for righteousness sake, that is when you suffer for, for because you are a Christian, that we ought not to be surprised, thinking of 1 Peter here, we ought not to be surprised when we suffer for our faith in Jesus, because this in fact is a mark of being a follower of Christ. Now, just to clarify, that doesn't mean Christians should, Christians should pursue, we should not pursue suffering, we should not uh, want to glamorize suffering, but we, we should want to, uh, within the biblical parameters and and with common sense and common grace, we, we should want to avoid suffering whenever possible. But but the New Testament seems to suggest if you are a follower of Christ, that suffering is inevitable. All who choose all who 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 choose to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And and so one mark of the people of God that you see in Lamentations, you see it in in the prophetic literature, you also see it in the New Testament, is that the people of God 
choose to remain faithful to their God in the context of suffering. And that's one of the marks is perseverance in times of, of lament, uh, persevering in hope. It was, it was a really helpful section of the book. And that whole part of the book in the biblical survey was great, but I, I really zeroed in on the prophets in particular as something I really enjoyed. So thank you very much for that. Late in the book, you turn to sort of pastoral application for today. And I wanted to ask you just a few questions related to that, if I may. And the first one being, how do you uh, see the, the connections between racism and power? How do those two ideas relate? Yeah, you know, in, in the book, I, I try to offer in the first chapter or the introductory chapter, a definition of race. If you remember, that definition took about three pages and a footnote where I, I tried to give some clarity to how I, how I was using the term race and racism. And I make the point that racism fundamentally, it, it exists, of course, because of sin. If, if, if sin never entered creation, if there was no fall, there would never have been racism, I, I don't think. I think racism is a product of the fall. But, but, but we can also say that racism historically is, is, a, is connected to, yes, individual transgression, individual animosity, but it's also connected to power, to, 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 to structural power, to maintaining power. I think clearest example of that is, uh, is looking at how the concept of race uh, operated in the new world and then into, the, in, into what became the United States with sl- issues of slavery and, and issues of Jim Crow and its aftermath. And, and so one of the things I try to say in the book is, is that for Christians who believe in a robust doctrine of sin, uh, that sin is an individual transgression. Sin is also uh, original. We are conceived in sin. And, and because we are conceived in sin, we, we commit sins. But sin, thirdly, I, I argue, is a cosmic power. And if we believe in a robust doctrine of sin, we should, we should also affirm this reality that sin has a structural element to it. And I think one way in which sin has operated throughout history in our context has been to use issues of, of race and um, to, to in order to uphold and maintain power and to dehumanize people, uh, to, to keep groups of people in their so-called place and to strip them of that power and to strip them of, of the image of God. Now, of course, as I've already stated, uh, racism is fundamentally a sin problem, but sin operates both at the individual level and at the structural level. And so then when you think about redemptive kingdom diversity, uh, this is this is th- this message is good news because the gospel, in my view, is God's vertical, horizontal, and cosmic saving action in Jesus to restore everything that Adam and Eve lost in the garden. And that means that Jesus is about the business of, stripping the forces of evil and the principalities and powers of the air, earthly and demonic powers, stripping them of their power and, and seeking to restore all that, that Adam and Eve lost in the garden. And a signpost of that reality is when God converts in Christ individual Jews and Gentiles uh, from different tongues, tribes, and peoples and nations, and he gives them his spirit and unifies them to love one another and their neighbors as themselves. That's a picture that God is doing something cosmic 
to restore the structural as well as the individual and the cosmic brokenness that we that we have. Amen to all of that. And I appreciate the emphasis there just being hopeful mm. that these issues are big and weighty and racism is real mm. and is built into power structures, but who's got more power than King Jesus? That's right. That's right. And you know, one of the power structures I try to to mention in the book was I gave a footnote where I talked about redlining. And of course, redlining is a very complex uh, reality. But the power structure of race and racism, we see we see the effects of that working itself out even today, where you have certain communities that still feel the uh, the brokenness of over intentional racist and power structures that were implemented in our country. And even though the laws changed, the effects of those power structures are still impacting negatively some of those communities. And that's one reason why I think Christians have a, a thoughtful and, and a mindful uh, vision for how to, yes, see sinners saved, but also how to bring hope and redemption to the communities in which they find themselves as they seek to be light in darkness and in, and in neighborhoods and communities and cities and states and communities that are broken because of how sin has worked itself out structurally in our, in our world. And having a robust theology of these things and seeing how the gospel applies in so many different situations affects things like housing policy. Mm. I think you're absolutely right. Mm. You mention also the example in this horrible pandemic we still find ourselves in of another horrible facet of that, which is anti-Asian racism that's been uh, we've been noticing on the rise lately. Um, thank you for including that example. That's something we've highlighted a couple times through articles and a mention on the podcast. But what did you have in mind when you included that example? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I, I wrote that section. Well, originally I wrote an article, a short article for a website during the pandemic, when some of the um, uh, incidents of anti-Asian racism were were coming to public uh, awareness, and there were numerous situations that emerged where uh, beautiful uh, Asian uh, image bearers were being assaulted uh, because they're they're Asian, and that was it was so devastating to see uh, how even in a pandemic, how sin continued to operate and to, to dehumanize beautiful image bearers because of their ethnic heritage. And so one of the things I want to do in that article was just to make the point that, that anti-Asian racism is racism. And uh, one reason why I want to include this in the book and one reason why I wrote the article is, as you know, in, in our country, when people talk about racism, they, they tend to restrict that conversation to the black-white divide. And they do that for, I think, for many reasons. But one, I think, is because of the historical origins of our country and how ide ideas of race and racism are, are fundamentally connected to the, the black-white relationship in, in our country with respect to slavery and the, the aftermath of that with Jim Crow and, and, and those realities. But one of the things I say in the book is, is, that, is that racism takes on a life of its own because of the universal power of sin. And that racism is something that is operating in all diverse ethnic communities so that you have you have white racism, you have black racism, you have Asian racism, you have Hispanic racism, you have racism is, is a potential danger wherever there are 
sinners. And uh, and I say in the book, although racism does not look the same in every single community, racism is racism. Racism can still be present nevertheless. And so with respect to the anti-Asian racism, I wanted to make the point that that when when blacks or Hispanics dehumanize and mistreat uh, beautiful Asian image bearers because uh, of their ethnic heritage, that is racism. And it, it's, it's not only racism when whites do it, it's also racism when, when people of color do it. And, and again, racism, it does not look the same in every community. There's a particular kind of racism we're talking about when we talk about white racism. But racism is evil, regardless of of the community within which racism is is flourishing. And so I wanted to make the point very clearly that the the every single way in which racism manifests itself is evil and is antithetical to the gospel. And and Jesus has died for some for every tongue, tribe, people, and nation in order to restore the the beautiful relational harmony that image bearers should have with one another. And and speaking against anti-Asian racism is is important because it dehumanizes uh, beautiful image bearers for whom Jesus died. And and anti-Asian racism is is another example of how we need redemptive kingdom diversity. I think readers who get this book will appreciate the kind of clarity and precision on definitions that you just showed that's present throughout this book. I think it's just very helpful in that regard. I wanted to ask you, how does our biblical theology affect our politics? Yeah, you know, I have um, an example in the book where I, I move beyond the the applying the biblical theology to the race conversation into applying it to political identity. And, and one of the things I, I say in the book is, is that uh, Jesus Christ cares more about the kingdom of God than he cares about any earthly kingdom. And uh, the, the, the redemptive kingdom diversity for which Jesus died and rose again is a kingdom diversity that includes Democrats, Republicans, um, and any other political group that bows the knee to Jesus Christ. And I make the point that that Jesus died for sinners, and some of those sinners are Republicans, some of those sinners are Democrats, and some of those sinners would be other other ethnic, or excuse me, other political groups. And and so the f- fundamental allegiance, I argue in the book, that we all should have is to Jesus Christ. And we should, and everyone should hold on to his or her political affiliation loosely, because King Jesus wants our full allegiance to him. And, and so with respect to, to how a biblical theology of redemptive kingdom diversity should impact uh, our political identities. We should subvert every earthly identity that we have underneath the lordship of Jesus Christ and recognize that there will be times when our political loyalties will be at odds with our loyalties to Jesus. And we must always 
choose Jesus, just like there will be times when our individual ethnic identities and the groups of which we're part ethnically will, will, will be challenged or tempted to embrace things that are contrary to the Spirit. And we must always side with living in step with the Spirit. And, and so I think the point that I wanted to emphasize in that section was about political identity was to say, is that, yeah, you, you have the freedom in Christ to, to be a part of a, a political group that you want to be a part of or not to be part of a political group. But fundamentally, your identity in Jesus transcends any other loyalty that we should that we should have. And so what, what I think redemptive kingdom diversity is calling us to recognize is, is that Jesus Christ is, is the one who demands our ultimate loyalty. And certainly we can love our country. We can love our party. We can, we can hold those things in the appropriate place under the Lordship of Jesus Christ and under the authority of God's word. But as I say in the, uh, as I say in the book, greater than the Christian's love for country or party should be our love for God, for the kingdom of God, for the king of the kingdom, and for all of the diverse people who who fill that kingdom. And, and there are many people from many different political perspectives for whom Jesus has died. And, and, and what we need to then do, those of us who are followers of Christ and are part of the people of God and, and share different, different political perspectives, is to love one another and intentionally seek in our diversity to live in unity for this beautiful redemption for which Jesus died and rose again. Yes, we can have conviction. Yes, we can have passion for whatever our political perspectives are, but but we can love one another even as we disagree with one another fiercely. And that, that too is a mark of the people of God, the ability to disagree in love while pursuing redemptive kingdom diversity in the power of of the spirit. And isn't it interesting how I think a lot of Christians would agree with that as you've just articulated it, but when they get to church on Sunday morning and run into someone with a different political preference, we can forget it. Easily. We all can. I mean, I can, you, you know, I, uh, and it's the same thing with, as it relates to uh, ethnicity, it, it's so easy to talk about redemptive kingdom diversity until something happens in our particular community or tribe or political posture that uh, makes it difficult for us to lean into what we know the scripture teaches. And, and, and I hope readers appreciate this. One of the things I try very hard in the book to, to do is, is to make sure it is clear that this book is not a tribalistic book. Uh, there are people from a variety of different political affiliations, from a variety of different ethnicities that I hope will feel encouraged and also challenged to lean in to this robust vision that I'm trying to outline uh, from, from Scripture. And we all, have to, we all have to constantly remind ourselves that, that we all have blind spots and we all have weaknesses. And this is why, Austin, this is why, brother, we need each other. We, the, the, the church of Jesus Christ, the people that we need one another to, to learn how to do what I'm suggesting we should do in, in this book. We, we need to, to, to one another to help each other 
grow in redemptive chemodiversity. We we can't do this by ourselves. We need each other. And and so my my hope and prayer is is that is that as we live in a broken world, that we'll live in a broken world as the people of God redemptively, and that we would lean into this redemption even when it's so hard to do, and even when it's easy to forget, that we would continue to wear each other out with love and, and good deeds. We need each other and we need the Lord's help, right? Amen. Well, why don't we, I mean, thank you for this time. Thank you for this excellent book. We will be giving copies away. So listeners check our social media for that. We, uh, we plan to give away a number of copies this month. Dr. Williams, are you all right if I open us in prayer for uh, everything we've talked about and you can close us? Absolutely. Thank you for asking. Yes. Father, thank you so much for this time. Thank you for this book. Um, Beyond that, Lord, thank you for the truths that it points out for your intention and care and heart for a diverse people for your own possession. Lord, we pray that uh, this side of glory, uh, when we are still affected by sin, still affected by the confusion and the pain that it brings, Lord, we pray that we would have hope in what you have done and what you are doing, uh, mindful that you know everything you've promised will come to pass in Jesus. And so, Lord, may you make us wise, may you make us loving, uh, help us to be agents of your reconciliation until you bring us home. In Jesus' name, amen. And Father, I pray also with my brother that um, thank you that you have promised to restore everything that Adam and Eve lost in the garden. And Father, I thank you that we thank you that in Christ Jesus, you've already begun to do that. And when Jesus on the cross shouted, it is finished. He meant that the very salvation, the very redemption for which you sent him to accomplish was being accomplished, was accomplished. And you raised him from the dead in order to vindicate him and to prove that it in fact had been finished. And we thank you that that you have vertically worked to convert sinners, to change sinners' relationship with you, to make them right with you. We thank you that you've also worked horizontally to restore broken relationships. And we pray that you have worked, we praise you that you have worked cosmically to, to begin the process of restoring this fallen creation. And we know, Lord, right now we live in this already not yet tension, where on the one hand, Jesus in his death and resurrection has accomplished all of these things, but yet on the other hand, we taste them in part now and we await them to be fully revealed on the last day when Jesus returns from heaven to earth in order to bring about the fullness of our redemption, giving us glorified bodies, giving us a perfect world without sin, and overthrowing the devil and evil and sin once and for all. We await that day, but Father, we thank you that right now you've given us a signpost of that redemption by means of the indwelling presence and power of the Spirit. And Father, we pray that the Spirit who lives in your people who are trusting in Jesus Christ by faith, who have been justified by faith in Christ, that you would work in us by your Spirit to love one another. Father, your people, this world needs to see the love of God in Jesus, yes, proclaimed, yes, preached, yes, obeyed, yes, applied, but also lived out amongst those who claim the name of Jesus. So, Father, we pray that you would use this book in some small way to bring that about. We pray that, that you would breathe on it, 
that you would use it to bless and transform classrooms and churches and communities and families, cities, nations. Lord, we ask that you would work in a powerful way. And we pray, Father, that Jesus Christ would be highly exalted and honored through the lives of your people who read the book and hopefully are moved to go forward in living redemptively in ways that are consistent with their context, consistent with their gifts and calling, and in ways that will bring glory to yourself. And Father, we pray that you would unite your people in love. And, and Father, we also want to pray that you would please bring an end to all of the, the mean-spiritedness, the hatefulness, the enmities, and the divisions that are running rampant throughout many Christian communities. Forgive me in my own heart. Forgive us in our own hearts for how we've been bitter and selfish and divisive in ways that dishonor the redemption that you accomplished for us in Christ. But Father, we pray that you would help your people to model repentance and forgiveness for this broken world. And we pray that we would have as part of our vocabulary redemptive kingdom diversity, and that we would live it, Lord, we pray. And we ask that you would do great things beyond what we could ever even ask or imagine. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you so much to our guest, Dr. Williams. Thank you for listening. As always, you can find more information about our ministry and about this new excellent book on our website at youwepray.com. Grace and peace. Oh